0: I'm sure if I were to ask the question this morning how many of us how many of us have have ever raised the question Lord what in the heavens are you doing? I am quite sure if we are honest this morning Morning, that the majority of us who have walked with the Lord for any length of time have felt the sting of frustration and being perplexed and even disoriented as we have tried to figure out what God is up to in the world. Or what God is up to in my life. If i honest, this morning I admit that I often don't understand the ways of God. And when I speak with God, sometimes I am clear on what he says, but oftentimes I feel left in the dark. There are times in my life where there are such fluctuations and uncertainty that it seems to be my allotted portion. One moment I'm up on the mountaintop and the next moment I'm down in the valley. One moment I'm singing Halle, hallelujah hallelujah. And the next moment, I'm down prostrate singing, Lord, help my unbelief. It was Frank Sinatra who said, that's life. That's what people say. You're riding high in April and you're shot down in May. Now, beloved, don't get me wrong. I want us to be reassured and understand that we know that life is not the result of fortuitous circumstances or a series of random events strung together by the rolling of some cosmic dice. But on the contrary... Our lives and this world are in the hands of a sovereign, actively ruling God. And he is orchestrating our lives and even history for his grand and glorious purposes and ends. And yet, even though we know that, and even though we are assured of that, we still admit that there are times when we are left wondering, Lord, what in the heavens are you doing? Seeing and understanding the will and the ways of God is not easy, beloved. It, It takes time. Takes time. You rarely know what God is up to right away. In fact, to really find out what God is doing today, you're going to have to wait till tomorrow. And most of the times it takes longer than just tomorrow because his wisdom is above our wisdom and therefore it is so far above our wisdom it is as if we're looking for a checker game and God is playing chess. Joseph and his family has been in this ordeal for 22 years. For 22 years, Joseph has been trying to figure out what is the Lord really up to here? It takes time, beloved. To see the purposes of God unfold. It takes time to see his plan ripen. And if it takes time, then that means also it takes patience. It takes patience because God moves on his own schedule and he does not suffer from the debilitating disease of impatience. And since he doesn't suffer for that, God's people are often encouraged And in the scriptures, strongly encouraged to wait. Wait on the Lord. Now I know, I know, I know, beloved. Wait is often worse than no. I mean, if you just say no, I can get on with it. But oftentimes, in the purposes and plans of God, God doesn't say no. He just says, wait. Wait on him. In fact, Romans chapter 5 and verse 4 reminds us that patience, beloved, is an essential quality and characteristic of faithful Christianity. Patience. When Job was going through all of his ordeal, beloved, when he was seeking to understand what God was doing in his life, he had come to the point of being frustrated, he had come to the point of wanting to know, is there an end to all this? And he said, if a man dies, shall he live again? Because it seems to me that that's where I'm going. But then he says, All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. I will wait until my change. It takes time. It takes patience. And therefore, beloved, it takes faith. In fact, this is the most important aspect of seeking to understand and know the will of God. It takes faith. You must trust what God is doing through the ups and the downs, through the mountains and the valleys. Only the eyes of faith will keep you and me from straying from the path. Only the eyes of the faith. Joseph, beloved, couldn't see what God was doing, but Joseph trusted the God who was doing it. It takes the faith beloved. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 tells us that faith is the evidence of things unseen. The will of God unseen. The will of God and the purposes of God undetected. The will of God and the purposes of God not understood but by faith We trust the God who is doing it like little children, Jesus says, in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 3, that you must become like little children. What do little children do? They trust, even though they don't understand, have no idea where mommy and daddy are going, have no idea what mommy and daddy are really doing, but they look in the eyes of mommy and daddy. And when daddy says, jump, what are the child, what does the child do? They jump. And unless you become as little children, trusting in your father, such faith, do not inherit the kingdom of God. It takes time, it takes patience, and it takes faith, beloved, to know what's going on. What's going on? I think this was the condition of the brothers, Joseph's brothers. As they re-entered Egypt this last time, as they were seeking to leave, you know the story as we've been going over it. The brothers came back to Egypt. Why? They came back to retrieve their brother Simeon. And they came back to retrieve their brother Simeon, carrying with them their youngest brother in tow, Benjamin the apple of their father's eye, but they brought him just as the prince of Egypt had required. And you can imagine, at least you should, that as they came back into Egypt, they came back with a bit of fear and trepidation in their hearts. They came back not knowing exactly what was going to happen. They came back. And as we say our last week, they came back in fear, but what they found was mercy. And yet, if we have any enlightenment and understanding, you and I know that we don't find mercy. As if it's a nut and we're some blind squirrels. You don't find mercy as much as mercy finds you, beloved. And not only mercy, but grace. But grace. They came back to Egypt with fear and trepidation. And what they received was mercy and grace. See that? Chapter 43 and verse 33, where the the Bible says, and they sat down before him, speaking of Joseph. And he sat them down, the firstborn, according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. And portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of the others. And they drank and were merry with Joseph. They drank and they were merry with him, turning their fear and trepidation into joy and rejoicing. not only did they receive their brother back, beloved, but they enjoyed a feast at the home of the prince. And not only that, beloved, but they were seated according to their ages. Now, I haven't done the permutations. And you mathematicians in here may want to try. But the possibility of lining up 11 men in the exact order from their birth, from the oldest to the youngest, by chance, is the likelihood, even more so, of you and I winning the lotto. What in the heavens is God doing? They looked around and they were amazed. And not only were they amazed at the order in which they were seated, but they looked at their plate and the portions that they received. It's been a long time since they ate like that, beloved. There's been a famine in the land. They were eating grain and nuts in Canaan and set before them is a feast like they haven't had in years. Huge portions of food and drink, and the Bible says that they made merry even into the wee hours of. When it was time to go home, you imagine, they couldn't believe their fortune. They couldn't believe it. As they began to load up their pack mules, they looked around and they said, we have both brothers, Simeon and Benjamin. We have food, we have money, and we have full stomachs. They were riding high, beloved. I am sure they looked at each other and thought life couldn't be better. Why were they so excited? They were so excited because this is how you feel when you think you've gotten away with murder. Tell the truth. This is how you feel when you think you've pulled the wool over everybody's eyes and you've gotten away with your sin. Beloved, here's the truth of the matter. No one gets away with murder. No. regardless of what they say on TV, No one gets away with murder. God tells us in Numbers chapter 32 and verse 22, be sure, be sure that your sin will find you out. Nobody, beloved, nobody gets away with murder. All sin will be punished. All sin will be called into account, either either in this life or in the life to come. All sin must be accounted for and all sin must be paid for and you either have that sin paid by Christ on the cross or you will bear the weight of that sin in hell yourself. But all sin gets accounted for. beloved. Nobody away with murder. Here's the glorious thing. God, in his mercy and his grace, gives you and I space to repent. That's what the Bible says in Revelation chapter chapter 2 and verse 21. The Bible says that he gave that wicked woman Jezebel. Space to repent of her sins. And what did she do? The Bible says that she repented not. It wasn't because, beloved, God didn't give her time and space. And even now, He gave it to Joseph's brothers, He gives it to you. Mean. but Joseph's brothers probably thought beloved that they were through with Egypt when they got on those pack mules and started heading back to Canaan I'm sure they didn't want to see Egypt again they was not interested in talking to the man in charge anymore they thought they were through with Egypt but God was not through with them So what does Joseph do? Well, Joseph has a surprise for these brothers. He orders his, one of his men to, to take his silver cup, his personal cup, and place it into the, the sack, the belongings of the youngest son, Benjamin. And unbeknownst to to those brothers, they were carrying out of Egypt the cup, personal belonging of the prince of Egypt. And just as they were making their way back to Canaan, the Bible says that Joseph sends his men out to arrest Benjamin for stealing the cup. Now when the brothers found out that the cup Joseph's cup the prince's cup was in Benjamin's sack they couldn't believe it how imagine they look at each other and they say are you serious This cannot be happening look up to heaven and say God what are you doing what is this all about we were on our way home all was well We were on our way to see our father again. Our family was going to be reunited again, and everything was good. How dare you interrupt my life? How dare you throw this roadblock in my way? How dare you take that person from me? How dare you cause me to lose that job? I had it all figured out. It was all good. How dare you come and interrupt my plans? Can you hear? You hear you. What are you doing, God? We were on Easy Street. My husband and I, we were doing good. The kids were all well, the business was growing, the church was settled. What in the heavens are you doing? Let me tell you what he's doing. Same thing he was doing to those boys. He is being good to you. That's what he's doing. He is being good to you. And I'm sure it didn't seem like it to them. But even in the midst of the test and the trial that were these circumstances, God was being good to the sons of Israel. You know why? Because all things considered, all things considered, Psalm 103.10 reminds us that he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. In fact, beloved, as Job was going through all that he was suffering and enduring, one of Job's friends said to him, no, Job, That God exacts from you less than your sins deserve. Beloved, I want you to understand something. These gods experienced the goodness of God despite themselves. He was good to them in filling their bags, He was good to them in filling their stomachs. They were eating when they should have been starving. They were full when they should have been empty. They were laughing when they should have been crying. They were living when they should have been dying. He was being good to them, beloved, and sending them back to Egypt. You know why? Because he could have let them gone back to Egypt and remained in their sins. He could have left them in their sins, beloved. It may not seem that way to them. Oh, but God was being good to them. And Chuck Colson, Chuck Colson was the former special counsel in President Nixon and got caught up in the Watergate scandal. And because of Watergate, Chuck Colson went to prison. Chuck Colson had realized his dream of, of wanting to orchestrate his man to the White House, to the highest seats of power in the country. He had had orchestrated his life in such a way that he was first and special assistant to the most powerful man in the world. And for him, all was good. And then, he was sent to prison. The shame of losing He gets out of prison, and the Lord arrests his heart, grants him faith, and he began to trust in the Lord and Jesus Christ and eventually started prison a fellowship, a ministry to those in prison that has continued to touch thousands and thousands and thousands of men and women around the world. Colson was reflecting one day on his life, of all the awards and the degrees and the promotions that he had had received and and all of the accolades and the places that he had been. And he said, the best thing that ever happened to me was going to prison. For it was the beginning of... Of God's greatest use of my life. It may not have seemed like it at the time. But God was being good to Chakos. And so he was here. He was being good. To these men. And sending them back to Egypt. Because. Romans 2 and 4 reminds us that it is the goodness of God that leads us or should lead us to repentance. And God loved us even while we were sinners. Christ died for us. Loving, I don't care. I don't care what the tarot cards And I don't care how the horoscope reads. This is a truth that you can bank on all the time. God has never not been good to you and me. Now I want you to understand that. I want you to understand that because it is popular today for people to call themselves getting angry with God. It is popular today for people to call themselves getting frustrated with God. And there are people who will tell you, it's okay, go ahead, get angry with God, get mad with God, get it all out. Well, as you are getting angry and mad with God, remember this, God has never not been good to you. And no matter what the circumstances are in your life. He has not exacted from you what your sins actually deserve. You engage in that foolishness if you want. God, no matter what you think your circumstances are, has been better to you than you deserve. What is he doing? Regardless of what you think, he's been good to you. You know how he's been good to you? Because he's bringing you an end to yourself. That's what he's doing. He's bringing you to an end of you. Because, beloved, when you end, that's when grace and mercy begins. That's what he's doing to these men. He's bringing them to an end of themselves. When he does, that's when grace and mercy begins. When. You lose your life, beloved. That's when you find it. That's when you find it. God, therefore, is exposing your sin. When they get back in front of Joseph, Joseph looks at those guys and he says in verse 15, Don't you know that I am a man who knows all things through divination. Beloved, the truth of the matter is it's not Joseph who knows all things. Joseph wants them to think he knows all things. Wants them to think that he knows all that they have done. But notice what Judah says. Judah says, in essence, well, Sir, I don't know about that. But it is now clear to me that God knows. God knows our guilt. God knows our sin. God knows our shame. And therefore, he has brought us back here because we are guilty. We are guilty. And therefore, we will be your subjects. We will be your servants. We bow down before you and submit to the will of the Lord. Can you imagine? That's the first time any of them has said anything remotely like that. No more excuses. No more hiding. No more tricks. No more word games. No more lies. No more deceit. God, you have us. Notice what Joseph tells them. Joseph says, Oh, no, 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 no. It's not going to be like that. I'm not going to hold you guilty for what your little brother did. No, I'm just going to keep him. The rest of y'all are free to go. The rest of you are free to return. And Notice Judah. Judah. Judah who orchestrated the betrayal of Joseph. Judah. Judah who planned Joseph's demise. Judah. Judah who took his father's welfare, for granted, and thought no nothing of his father's well-being. Judah speaks up and speaks out, beloved, in repentance, and on behalf of Benjamin, and pleads for the welfare of his father. I imagine when Joseph heard that, Joseph says, Where was this 22 years ago? Where was this compassion when I was down in the pit? Where was this desire to honor your father and to love your brothers when I was sold into Egypt? Now, lovers here. It's late, but it's never too late. I know Joseph was sick at Adam and said, boys, you're 22 years late. But God's purposes and plans ripen slow. And on our calendar, it might be late, but on God's calendar, it's not too late. It's not too late to turn. Beloved, if you can repent, it is not too late to repent. Did you hear what I said? If you can repent, then it is not too late to repent. If you can turn to God, it is not too late to turn to God. If you can ask for forgiveness, it is not too late to seek forgiveness. So it was. Someone once said that deep and lasting repentance is proven by when you have the chance to do the sin again, you don't do it. Now, beloved, we all repent when we get caught. We all repent when we get caught. When we get caught in a sin, We all repent of it, and and when we expose that it's wrong, we say, I'm sorry, Lord, please forgive me. I won't do it again. And that's great. That's what we should do. But deep, lasting repentance is tested. When you have opportunity to do that sin again, what will you do? And so it was with his brothers. Joseph gives them opportunity to do it again. The brothers didn't realize it. And sometimes we don't, beloved. But what God is doing is being good to us because he is saving us. What this is all about, isn't it, beloved? God is going to save Israel from Israel. God is going to save the twelve tribes of Israel from Israel. The brothers have lived a long and winding road, beloved. And Joseph has experienced many ups and downs and ins and out but in the end what God is doing is redeeming them he's saving them he's saving us took a while to get here didn't it? it took a while to get here and next time we're in this text we will see It took a while to get here, but here is the salvation of the Lord. And if you are ever wondering what the Lord is doing in your your life, it really boils down to this, beloved. God is saving you. He is saving you. He is redeeming you. He is shaping you. He is fitting you for heaven. He is getting you ready to behold his glory. He is pruning from you all that is wrong with you. He is seeking to make you right. I know you and I think that saving you is simple. It's not. It's not. It's not. Saving the 12 tribes of Israel was not simple. God had to orchestrate many things to bring about that glorious day of their redemption and saving you and me is not simple, beloved. It's not simple because the world doesn't want you saved. It's not simple because Satan doesn't want you saved. But more important than the world and Satan, it's not simple because you don't want you saved. And in saving you and me, God had to overcome the world. To save you and me, God had to overcome the devil. But most importantly, to save you and me, God had to overcome us and our opposition to him this is what he does he sent Joseph to Egypt so that 22 years later he would save Israel you understand that you think it's simple For Joseph to have suffered the loss of all for those past 22 years in order to save his brothers. You imagine how difficult that was? I got one that even trumps that. How difficult must it have been for Jesus to leave his heavenly father? And the glories of heaven. And come into this world. To save his sisters and brothers. To suffer the humiliation. To suffer the pain. To suffer the death of the cross. To suffer the shame. To die as a common thief on a cross for sins he never committed so that he might save you and me. Oh, beloved, it's with joy that our Lord came. But don't ever think for a minute that it was simple. your salvation and mine are not. Not only must Christ come and suffer humiliation unto death, even death on the cross, but then the Holy Spirit has to come and open your blinded eyes and soften your hard hearts. And then you and I then have to acknowledge and see our need of him. And like Joseph's brothers, we have to come and as the Bible says, bow down before the king. And say, like the brothers said to I'm guilty, Lord. I'm guilty. I have sinned. And I'm guilty. I am your servant. I am yours, Lord. And I submit to you. me. And as we'll see next time, beloved, like Joseph, that's all Jesus wants to hear. I'm yours, Lord. Save me. And the 22 years of toil will be exchanged for the joy of their salvation. And for the joy that was set before him, the Bible says, the joy of our salvation, the joy of our eternal redemption, our Lord endured the shame of the cross just to hear you and me say, we're yours, Lord. Heavenly Father,